Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Each week, Dr. Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest on a range of compelling topics, from literature to psychology to financial wellness. To learn more about Dr. Crosby's behavioral finance work at Orion, visit www.orion.com. Hello, and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby. I am joined today by Stacey Havener, CEO and founder of Havener Capital. We are going to talk today about her formula uh, for selling, raising money, and the psychology that sits behind it. Stacy, welcome to the show. Daniel, thank you so much for having me. It's truly a pleasure. My absolute pleasure. So Stacy, as I have gotten to know you, one of the things that I love the most about you is your backstory. Mm. You, you have helped fund managers raise billions, and it all started with your soccer coach of all places. So can you tell us about how you got interested in the world of finance while playing soccer? Yes, I'd be happy to. Um, and I don't know, interest is kind of a, an, a uh, curious word to describe it. Um, certainly for me, all roads do lead back to soccer. And before I tell you the backstory, let me sort of set the stage current and then we'll go backwards. So um, as you alluded to, I've, I've built a career helping underdogs raise billions on Wall Street. For context, I've raised over $8 billion in AUM for boutique asset managers. So these are obviously the, the firms who have the odds stacked against them. And that $8 billion has led to $30 billion in follow-on AUM. And we're just getting started. So, so let me leave you with that for a second. We're going to come back to it. And now I'm going to give you the backstory. So... On paper, I don't belong in this business. I am a blue collar kid from a working class town who got the wrong degree from the wrong school, and I'm a girl. So talking about college and soccer, I paid my way through college. I worked three or four jobs at a time while going to school full time and playing college soccer. Um, and my freshman year, I went to Western Connecticut State University in my hometown in Connecticut. Um, and my freshman year was the first year that Western had a varsity women's soccer team. So thank you, Title IX. To say we were underdogs is an understatement times a thousand. We were literally the bad news bears. When I left four years later, we were ranked third in the nation in Division Three. And it was one of the most profound sort of building experiences of my life and obviously has direct ties to what I do uh, for a day job right now. But the soccer piece, so that's one part of the soccer piece, but the, the piece that you're talking about. So I majored in English. I had dreams of becoming a literature professor, but again, I was going to have to pay my way through school. And my high school soccer coach and I had kept in touch over the years because obviously I was still kind of home going to school and he would come to my games and he was an incredible father figure in my life. Um, when I got ready to graduate, I think it was seriously the first time I realized that coaches have day jobs. I just thought he was like a soccer coach, but, but apparently uh, in his spare time, he was running a billion dollar small cap boutique asset management firm in Wilton, Connecticut. 
and he offered me a job. He knew, you know, he was like, look, you can come here, you can save some money. I want to launch a fund for the first time and you can help me do that, which was all well and good, except I knew nothing about stocks. Um, my dad was a math teacher, so I liked math, but again, like poetry and writing was really my jam. And he was like, I'll teach you. It's fine. So I did. I, I went there. We launched a fund. I learned a ton. We raised $500 million in two years, and I never left. I never went back to get my degree. I, I feel like for a girl who loves words, I really found a home in an industry filled with white men who love numbers. I don't know. I mean, it makes total sense in some weird way. And so the backstory is important because it's more than a job for me. It's, it's really a mission. It's a passion. It's a calling because you know, standing for underdogs is very near and dear to my heart because in so many ways I was one. So I hope that helps give a little color to the path. No, it, it does. Now you are obviously an English major. You're obviously a woman who, who loves words because you've just put on, uh, on purpose or, or not, you've just put on a masterclass on telling a story, right? You begin with, you begin with the, the end, right? You sort of tell us where it's headed, then you take mm. us back in time the same way a good movie begins with sort of the climactic shot and then takes you back in time to show how you got there. You know, you wove this theme of, of underdogs throughout helping underdog boutique fund managers raise money. You're on this underdog sort of only around, you know, only newly around soccer team helping underdogs yeah. this theme in life. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful story. Thank you. It's beautiful. It's beautifully crafted. And you're obviously very good at this, but, but we are in an industry filled yeah. with people who love numbers. And I think people who think numbers are sufficient, like I'm going to inelegantly drop the numbers in front of you and that should be all the convincing you need. You've told us your backstory, but I want you to speak to the importance of, of other people understanding and telling their backstory yes. when trying to make a sale because you think it's the single most important element of a good of a good sale. Daniel, I love what you said right there about Wall Street and kind of the, the focus on numbers because Wall Street does a really good job or bad job, however you want to say it, of sort of telling all of us that numbers are the only thing that matters. And you see this just in the behavior of portfolio managers and salespeople, like everybody wants to quote their performance or whatever cool Greek stat they want to throw out there and fling some fact sheets around. Like it's all about the numbers. It's not about the people. And that is so wrong. So if I look at the system that we've built, that's raised billions specifically for boutiques, and, you know, if somebody came to me and said, I'm a boutique asset manager, I want to raise billions, you know, what do I do? I see you have this system. I don't have time for that. <laughs> I can only do one thing. I would say, okay, your one thing is the backstory. And literally last week, um, we did a call with an early adopter investor and one of our clients who's a boutique. The call was about an hour. And the first 30... 40 minutes of the call, all we did was the investor told their backstory and then the portfolio manager told his. It was like literally the bulk of the call. We never talked about performance. 
ever. And that phenomenon of a boutique founder telling their backstory, there's something that we could have so don't laugh, but this is what we say internally. To us, that's what gets the investor to put on the I heart insert boutique client t-shirt, right? Like I heart Havener t-shirt, I heart Daniel Crosby t-shirt, whatever it is, that magic happens with the backstory. And that is the exact part that all found, I won't say all, many founders and portfolio managers skip. They literally go right to the what, they go right to the data, and they miss the fact that people invest with people. People connect with other people. They, people don't connect with a brand. They connect with another person. But, you know, I think the, the misconception is that we think that people will take a set of facts and then arrive at a logical conclusion from that dispassionate set of facts when, when in, in truth of the matter is that people feel emotions and then they retrofit the facts to fit those. Yes. So I think the backstory is right in a way of inducing an emotional component to it. But Stacey, what are, if, if you had to pick just, you know, a handful or fewer of mm-hmm. components of a good backstory, your backstory yeah. was great. I, I sort of outlined some of what I liked about it. Yeah. He is the hallmarks of a good backstory. Well, I love your comment about emotion. So I think that's part of it. And it's interesting. And, and I'll get to your question. I'm not, I'm not blocking and bridging or whatever that cool tactic is that, that people do. Um, when you ask a portfolio manager or a founder. So like, that's part of our due diligence process, right? Well, tell us your story. Like, how did you come to found your firm? And it's very interesting what happens when we ask the question, because some people are like, huh, what, what, huh? Uh, uh, they give you like their bullet point resume. I worked here from these years to these years. And I worked here from these years. to these. And you're like, oh, okay, that's interesting. But like, what's the real story? And what, What typically unlocks it for some people is when you ask them about their mentor. And for some reason, when you ask somebody to tell you about their mentor, um, some emotion comes back into the picture. It becomes less bullet points and it becomes more story. And I think it's because typically their mentor, that relationship is very special and there is a component of heart to it. And so that can be a way to kind of get things going. So especially if a lot of our clients are breakaway portfolio managers and they worked somewhere and you, you kind of alluded to this with the movie element, they worked somewhere, they had a mentor, they built a business typically for, for breakaways, it goes like this. They built a business, they, you know, they were really good at generating alpha and then they turned into really good at gathering assets, which degraded their ability to generating to generate alpha. And then they decided like, there's got to be a better way to do this. And I'm going to go out on my own and give it a whirl. That arc, that story arc is a very typical story arc for a breakaway portfolio manager. And oh, by the way, it's a story arc that early adopter investors love. So I think if somebody wanted to take the time to sort of look at, I mean, story brand kind of does this, but if they do it more at the brand story level, to me, the missing piece is the backstory, which is the founder's story. And if you have trouble getting there, um, one of the ways to kind of unlock the emotional part is to start talking about your mentor and the journey 
like journey up that hill to the top? And then what is that sort of falling action, that problem that that sparked you to start your firm? You started your firm to serve a certain tribe and to help them solve a certain problem. That's where you're ultimately going, but it's the path that gets there. And it has to be the movie version. I jokingly say to PMs, like, tell it to me where I'm like, you know, looking for the popcorn. I want to, I want it to be the trailer. I want it to be like the Rocky of investment management. You know, I want to be cheering for you before this thing's over. So it's fascinating. You talk about this, you know, it's, it's like fund managers need to be reading Joseph Campbell. They need to be studying. Yes. You know, they need to be studying the monomyth and the hero's journey. Yes. And you need to have Rocky or Harry Potter or Star Wars. Yes, exactly. Or, you know, I'm Katniss, Katniss and Hamish, like that kind of, uh, you know, like Hunger Games. I mean, really any classic movie that has that arc is watch that. And then. Is that the drunk Woody Harrelson character? Yes. So your your fund needs a drunk Woody Harrelson character? Your, every fund manager needs a drunk Woody Har- Harrelson. I mean, you know, I don't want to say I could fill that role for you, but maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Making sure I've got the names right for the, for the Hunger Games. So given, you know, your whole focus is around psychology and behavior, which is how we became friends. And so it's it's less about focusing on simple activity for you. So many of the sales organizations I've been a part of have been about sort of, you know, call it, we'll, we'll call it shots on goal, keeping with our, our, our soccer. Yeah. Yeah. That's... It's like, you know, how many calls did you make? How many lunch, you know, how many steak dinners did you host? How many, whatever you do something else. You measure psychological variables instead of these sort of activity uh, variables. Tell us about your process a little bit and your sort of behavioral IQ measurements. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I think, again, not just this industry, but many industries, and especially this one, the focus for how effective is your sales team um, yeah, it's, it's going to be on assets raised, but while that's taking the 12 to 18 months to happen, um, everybody goes to activity, right? And so you'll get salespeople who are like, oh, I, you know, I left a hundred voicemails today and where's my gold star? And it's like, okay, you left a hundred voicemails. Well, how many people called you back? Because FYI, the only job of a voicemail is to get a return phone call. So high five on leaving all the voicemails. But if zero people called you back, that was a total waste of time. And it's those types of things. It's not, yeah, you don't want your salespeople to be slugs and just sitting there like waiting for the phone to ring. So you do want to look at activity. I get that. But at the end of the day, to really understand the efficacy of those efforts, you need to have some sort of ROI. And the measurement is on the behavior of the other person. Again, we spend so much time all caught up in our own stuff, talking about ourselves and, you know, you know, my company and my team, and we've been together for like collectively, you know, our experience is collective a thousand years in this industry or whatever. And that's like all anybody wants to talk about. And all anybody wants to think about are the things that we're doing. When in reality, what matters is what the other people are thinking about, what the other person is doing, not what we're doing. So, you know, to give you an example of, of this, like in play, if I leave you a voicemail, <laughs> if I leave you a voicemail 
And, you know, well, the first thing that's going to happen is I'm going to leave you a voicemail that's very boring and probably going to say something like, hi, it's Stacey Havener calling from Havener Capital. And you're going to be like, done, hang up, erase, right? So there's something in the delivery and, and that's a whole nother topic. But typically what happens in the voicemail is the person that calls tells you, tells the investor or whomever you're calling, why they're calling on the voicemail and then says, call me back. And you're like, why am I going to call you back? You just told me. That's a bad voicemail. If I called you up and say, Daniel, oh my gosh, it's Stacy. Want to hear something cool? Call me back when you have five minutes. Are you going to call me back? I'm going to call you back in two minutes. Exactly. So that's what I'm saying. <laughs> in other words, we forget the purpose of the voicemail is to get somebody to call you back. Not for you to leave the gem that you want to share with them on their voicemail and then say, call me back. Why am I calling you back? What are you going to tell me? What you already told me? So I love this. I love this. This is one of those subtle but, but powerful paradigm shifts where it's less about outbound behavior, if you will, and more about inbound behavior. Yes. You know, you want whatever, five, five big smiles, you know, that week or five returned calls or, or whatever. Yeah. Not just you, not just you slogging away, toiling in obscurity, doing things to check a box. You want results. And the exactly. results happen when someone gives you that behavior back, not when you put it out into the world in sort of a half-hearted way. Hundred percent. And and so like understanding at a fundamental level the job of every single thing you do, it sounds a little bit obsessive, and maybe it is, but but really, every single thing you do has a job. When you send an email, the email subject line has a job. What's the job? Get somebody to open the email. That's the only job. If I send you an email with a subject line that says checking in, what? Like boring, Bill. I don't want to read that email. And the voicemail is the same thing. So that's just an example. Like, again, a salesperson bragging about how many emails they sent or worse, scoring a deal on a probability basis based on the salesperson's activity, that is so wrong. That has no, no predictive like ability on the deal. If I score things like, have I received an unsolicited email from the investor with a question that they need help with? That's hugely predictive. So it's those types of things. As as a former missionary who tried to sell Christianity in Southeast Asia by knocking on doors, I can tell you that this resonates with me and that I have great empathy for people who are engaged in sort of low quality sales activities uh, because it's a tough, tough road. You don't have to convince me any further. So make sure everything you're doing has a job. Be deeply thoughtful about the job. Yes. That's something as small as an email headline, uh, an email subject line is doing, and then measure those inbound behaviors and not those outbound behaviors. Those two things right there are worth yeah. the price that people paid for this podcast. I love it. Yeah, it's good. I'm so glad. And also the work that you, that door to door thing, like you're probably the best salesperson one of on the planet and you just don't know it because that's super, super hard. Oh, it's terrible. I can, I can vouch. That's its, that's its whole own podcast. (laughs) Part of a, part of a behavioral approach uh, is understanding that 
the, the variety of quirks and personalities and idiosyncrasies you're going to run across as a salesperson is as varied and diverse as the people that you're, you know, you're, you're coming across. You sell to an early adopter crowd in the RIA space. So your, your fun sales process looks a little different than I think a lot of folks in our industry. How do your conversations differ uh, mm-hmm. from, from someone further down the, uh, or, or I guess, later down the adoption bell curve? And, mm-hmm. and how do you go about sort of personalizing your communications? Mm, it's such a good question. So actionable tip, if this was like a video, we'd have some sort of like light bulb going off here. Google the Rogers adoption curve, print it, wait, Google it. Make sure the curve that you find has the chasm in the curve, because I did this before our call and some of the curves don't have the chasm and that's, don't print those. Print the ones with the chasm. We'll talk about that in a second. Always with the chasm. Always with the chasm. Okay. Print that and then keep that with you. Carry it around, fold it up, put it in your pocket. Um, This, because the, the tribe that we, you know, sort of on the one hand, we have our people who are the fund managers, the boutiques, typically we work on new fund launches. So we're taking something that's really challenging, like really challenging to raise money for boutiques in general, odds stacked against you, got it. Now let's take a fund that has no money, no track record, and is just not on any platforms. And we're like, bring us that. (laughs) So so, um, the reason that we focus on that part of the bell curve, the Rogers adoption curve on the left side, which would be the innovators and early adopters is because you can't skip them. You can't pass go. They are the ones, they function like seed capital. You launch a fund, they're the ones that are going to take a chance on you. Is an endowment going to take a flyer on some new fund from a boutique? No, never. They can't be, they can't be uh, first, wrong, alone. None of that is going to work. Okay. And it's not good or bad. It's just they're in a different part of the curve. So RIAs and family offices, independent firms, they're sort of cut from the same cloth as a boutique. So going back to that backstory, um, what resonates when a founder of a boutique tells their story is going to be very similar to what a founder of an independent RIA lived, right? Those backstories are going to have common threads. And the, the RIA and family office channel, there is no mothership telling them, here's your approved list, here's what you need to buy. Or worse, here's the list of the funds that are going to generate the most commissions for you and for the firm and be really great if you could sell those. That doesn't happen with RIAs and family offices. They call their own shots. They're rebels in their own right. And they're willing to take the time to understand the backstory, the brand story, you know, where were you before? What strategy were you running? What did that look like? What are you launching now? They'll do that really kind of challenging, deep dive due diligence work. And they are not afraid to be first. In fact, they love it. So the analogy I always give of an early adopter is, you know, that, that curve is typically used in technology, but the reality, and I'd love to hear, you're, you're the expert on this stuff. Um, The reality is it's just a human behavior bell curve in my mind. So that early adopter group, those are like the people that sleep outside the Apple store to get the new phone, 
not really because it's like the best functioning, highest functioning, least amount of, of bugs. Like it's not about what it does necessarily. It's about the story around it. It's about being able to say, I've got this new thing. I've got it and it's gold. And look at it. Isn't it amazing? And I'm bringing, you know, so for, if you translate that to an advisor, they're bringing something to their client that the client could never find on their own. The client can't open the USA Today and go to the money page and see, you know, boutique asset management firm on the cover. They're going to see Vanguard or BlackRock or whatever. They're not going to see these hidden gems that the advisor is finding. And the advisor's relationship with that boutique is going to be so much different. They are going to have a personal relationship with the founder. There's an alignment of interests. There's a lot, an alignment of interests. No RIA is going to call up, you know, Larry Fink and be like, how's it going? That's not going to happen. So there's something in the magic of the spirit of both of those firms. And I think a lot of boutiques, a lot of asset managers in general, just sort of skip the RIA channel either because it's too fragmented or they think like ultimately they want institutions and they just try to go there first and it just doesn't work. That chasm is very, very real. If you get the early adopters and you want to make that leap, that is a very challenging thing to do. And you can't start on the other side of the chasm. It doesn't work that way. So in addition to downloading the adoption curve with the chasm feature, (laughs) that is a must, right? I'm going to have... I'm going to refer people to the big five. We've actually, we've actually covered this on, uh, on one of our very early podcasts with Dr. Jordan Turner, but the big five personality traits, you know, when I think about the, the personality traits of an ado- early adopter, I think the, the first one you're going to see is high openness to experience. So when we, we talk about what differentiates people, openness to trying new things is, is one of those five things that is reliably different among people. And then, uh, so the five spell out ocean, the O, the O is for openness to experience. The N is actually for neuroticism. It's, you know, the, the level of anxiety, <laughs> the level of anxiety or the level of worry that they have. And Stacey, I'd like to talk about your level of neuroticism next, but no, <laughs> the, the level of neuroticism, I think in many cases is going to be low. They're, they're, they're highly open to experience and they're not that they're not that vexed about what people think about them, or they're not that concerned about being different. I think people with high levels of anxiety operate from sort of this, nobody ever got fired for choosing IBM. Exactly. Uh, so you ask, there's the mentality, there's the personality of an early adopter. And you know, early adoption is normally distributed the same way that these personality characteristics are normally distributed. And that doesn't seem like a coincidence to me. So I think- yeah. Pairing these two ideas of the adoption curve that you're talking about and, and some of the personality traits that I'm talking about would be a powerful way for you to sort of personalize your message to, to the, the specific people you're, you're working with. A hundred percent agree. And I can't wait to listen to that podcast. Um, the, the idea that you just said of personalizing the message and, you know, maybe some people are rolling their eyes, but don't roll your eyes because what Daniel's saying there is super important. Personalizing the message does not mean, by the way, 
that you write an email template that sucks. And then the personalization is like, you put the first name thing that automatically fills in. That is not personalization. (laughs) To me, when I hear you say personalization, Daniel, what I see is this whole idea of attract and repel. So if, if I know, if I'm a boutique asset manager and I know that I have to get the early adopters, that, 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 that those are my people, those are my investors. They're the ones that, that are going to take a chance on me and I want to earn that trust. Then I have to craft my message that's specific to them. And when I do that, if I do it right, I'm going to repel the other end of that adoption curve. And that's okay. And that's what people in our industry, many of them are afraid to do. It's like, I'm going to try to be everything to everybody. I'm going to be a wandering generality. And wandering generalities don't win, especially if you're not a boutique, especially if you're a boutique. If you're not a boutique, maybe you can just wander around and and be, be general. But to win as a boutique, you need to be a meaningful specific. You have to stand for something. And you have to be okay that somebody looks at your fund or your firm and says, you're not for me. And you have to go, that's great. That's fine. Because then you're not for me. So no harm, no foul. Let's move on. But in our industry, it's like everybody wants every dollar. Yeah, that's, that's the biggest, that's the most powerful business lesson that I've observed firsthand is that when I tried to be everything to everyone, I was largely unsuccessful or sort of moderately successful. When, when my career uh, really took off is when I specialized. And that's a scary yeah. process because mm-hmm. people, uh, you know, you're, you're effectively saying no to, to things, but you're also saying yes to a very powerful subset of those things. And you can't have the one without the other. And, and I know you understand that. So Stacy, we've had a couple of great conversations. You've shared with me some of your great success stories. And, and one of the things that I noticed, the thread that ran through all of them was it was people who had owned their own quirks. They had sort of flown their freak flag, as it were. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the the psychology behind that. So there's two pieces of research that I want to talk about. The first is research on people who are sort of visually different. So you think about someone who wears you know, sort of bold, uh, bold colors at an office where, you know, khakis and navy blazers are, are the rule. You think about someone who has you know, facial hair, wears bold jewelry or something like that. What they found is that these people were not viewed as sort of outcasts or outsiders. Their being slightly quirky was actually viewed as a power move. The assumption was that they could do those things because they brought something different and better uh, and, and good to the table that allowed them to operate you know, slightly outside of the norm. We don't want to be way outside the norm, of course. <laughs> But operating slightly outside of the norm gave people power. The second research is on something called the pratfall effect. It's one of my absolute favorite um, sort of human tendencies. And the way that they studied is that they they compared three different politicians. You know, of course, these are actors who are are playing politicians. The first politician goes up and is just a, a... Bumble, bumbled mess, right? Just a bungling mess, gets nothing wrong, de- you know, delivers a crappy speech, none of it's put together, dropping papers everywhere, just right. So that's your first, your first person. 
The second person gets up immaculately put together, perfectly coiffed hair, great suit, gets up there, delivers their speech flawlessly, steps down, you know, nailed it. The third person is uh, well-dressed. They're walking up to the stage. They trip just a bit on the stair going up and spill a little water on their suit. They make a joke about it. You know, they sort of laugh at themselves. They present their speech in a way that is is competent and understandable, but, but not as polished as the second person. Who do you think people like the most? They like that last person. They like that politician who was competent but human. You know, we don't want a screw up, but we don't want an automaton either. We don't want someone who's perfect or or flawless. And so I think we need to, as an industry and as a world, just get more comfortable with owning our quirks. So with that lengthy preamble, Stacey, why why is owning quirks so powerful? And why, why do you think we're so scared of it in a sales context? Oh my gosh. Is there like an applause button on this thing? That was so good. I loved that. I I mean, I don't know that I have anything to add to it. You just captured it so well. Um, It's very, so what I loved about the anecdotes you shared, and it made me just flash back to so many of the success stories that we've had is, is, you know, you said the word humanize, it's endearing. It's endearing. And People, especially now, like they can spot a fake. You know, if you show up and you're trying real hard and, you know, you've got like you described the suit that kind of reminded me of like a blockbuster uniform, but it's not. I know I've got to get that out of my head. It's like the, the Wall Street uniform. Um, that's tired and, and no one cares. Like it starts just blending in. Again, it's that wandering generality. Um, it is very challenging for people to be okay with their vulnerabilities, with their quirks, with the things that make them different. And if you think about it, and again, I defer to you, I mean, you're the expert on this stuff. Um, I liken it to, let's go back to like the cafeteria in sixth grade, which might be like one of the worst places and experiences in the, in your life. I don't know, maybe it's just mine, (laughs) but you know, you want, no one wants to go sit by themselves. You want to sit at the table with all the cool kids. And to do that, you have to be like them and you have to blend in. And so while again, everybody says, Oh, you got to be different. And then everyone who receives that message goes, yeah, I know. And rolls their eyes. Of course I am different. But the reality is at a very, very deep base level, who wants to be different? Different means alone. Different means other. And no one really feels comfortable with that. It's scary. And some people naturally can't, they, their quirks are just there and they, and, and those people just kind of, they don't know how to turn off the quirks. And so the quirks just exist. And they probably don't even realize that the quirks are helping them in the sales process. But sometimes you do have to help especially in our industry, help a portfolio manager understand that it's okay to be a person. It's one of our cardinal things that we talk about at Havener for our sales team, for our portfolio managers. Like first, be a person, be smart, be cool, be somebody that, you know, is worth having a conversation with, not because you're going to drop all these stats and knowledge bombs about what's happening in the market. That's great. But like, be a person with hobbies and interests, 
I was in a meeting um, with a portfolio manager. They raised like $60 billion, but at the time they had $17 million, you know, in their fund. And we were, again, like, this is, this is my lot in life. Like take these things on that seem um, impossible and show that they're not. Well, we went into this meeting with a very, you know, multi-billion dollar early adopter RIA on the West Coast. And the portfolio manager had come in from um, somewhere in California. And he's a runner. He's a runner who wears swatch watches because he always loses his expensive watches. So first of all, he has a swatch watch on. Second, we get to the table and it's like a room full of white dudes, uh, you know, all want to hear this PM talk. and feeling a little bit stuffy. And that's, I love that because we can totally shake it up. So PM comes in, he has his bag. He's like, let me grab the presentations. <laughs> so he grabs the presentations and proceeds to like fling sand all over the conference room table. And he's like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. My running shoes are in my bag and now there's sand everywhere. And every, it just like broke the ice. And for the rest of that meeting, people, you know, they, they took off their, like, I'm the investment analyst hat and they just were people. And we, we all were, we just sat there and talked. And again, it kind of goes back to my anecdote of the call we gave at the end of the day, people are about to allocate, investors are going to allocate significant dollars of their client's money to you. Be a person, like start there. Yeah, being a person, I think, means having an opinion. And until you put some substance out into the world and in, until you put your own unique stamp on the world and your own unique viewpoint out to the marketplace, people aren't really in a position to accept or reject you because you're amorphous. You just blend into the yeah. crowd. And so being a person, I think, is such great advice. And you have to understand people will reject you, but, but people can't accept you. Uh, unless they can also reject you. And so I think being a person means being vulnerable enough to, to line up for that sort of acceptance and rejection. Not easy to do, but I think it's absolutely formative. So Stacey, last, last yeah. question here, and then we're going to yeah. the fun questions. I'm so excited. Yes. Knowing what you know about the industry, yeah. you're, you're charged tomorrow with starting your own asset management firm. What does okay. it look like? Your own boutique, what's the strategy, the conviction, the style, what asset classes, whatever you want, what does that look like for you to be max successful over the next decade? Okay, so this is such a good question. Um, I'm a big believer in owning your unique ability. So let's just get it on the table. I am not an investment. That's not my unique ability at all. So the first thing I have to do is find a portfolio manager because otherwise my asset management firm is a complete failure. Um, I will bring the product development and I will bring the, you know, the rockstar sales and marketing, but I got to find this PM. So, so to me, I love the breakaway story. I love capacity constraint. Um, that leads me to things like small cap or EM or any, any even like really niche alt strategies, anything that has capacity constraint. And there's, and you can kick all the knowledge about why that's powerful. Um, the boutique would have to be, you know, hundred percent employee owned would have to have our own money in the, the fund that we'd be managing. 
And, and that to me, like those qualitative things and yes, like, okay, cost of doing business. You need to be good at what you do. I need to be good at what I do. I am. I need to find a portfolio manager who's good at what they do. That's sort of like a non-starter, right? Um, but to me, it's more of the behavioral things, again, that matter. Um, an asset class where investors still believe that active can add alpha, um, where there's capacity constraint, where high conviction matters. And again, where everybody in this asset management firm can be aligned alongside the investors. That would be amazing to me. I love, I love to hear you talk about it. Med Faber has put forth some interesting research on how few uh, PMs sort of eat their own cooking and are, are meaningfully invested in their own funds. I got to say, that's one thing that, that I think is the, the hallmark of someone who's a true believer in what they're doing is that they're invested yeah. alongside their clients. So I love yes. it. I stand ready to write a check uh, when, you find, <laughs> when you find this rockstar PM and, and start, start your I'll call you. Yes, do it. Do it. But don't, don't leave me a message telling me what you uh, want. Yeah, exactly. I would say, Daniel, I've got something really, really cool. Remember that thing we talked about? Call me. And you're like, what? What thing? What? You call me back. See, it works. Yeah, I'd call you back and then I'd feel used when you tried to sell me. But that's a different thing. <laughs> I'm better than that. I'm better than that. <laughs> okay, so final, final uh, lightning round questions. This is an old shrink trick free association. I throw out a term and you yeah. just tell me the first thing that oh, comes to Okay. Deep, deep look into your psyche. Right. So you're a, you're a Rhode Islander. Uh, yes. And, uh, we're, we're making it known here on the podcast today that Rhode Island has the best flag in America. Hands down. It's an incredible flag. Incredible. Who has the second best flag behind Rhode Island? So this is a very good question. And I did some research on this before, uh, you know, our call because you, you let me know that this was coming. And I appreciate that because this is a fact finders, you know, kind of nightmare if this was off the cuff. Um, I, I looked up the flag of Massachusetts because I that's where I spent most of my childhood. That flag does not win. There's a lot of things wrong with that flag. We'll leave it at that. Um, I also lived in San Diego. So I was like, let me check out the California flag. And that's going to get my vote here on the second best. Even the bear in California is hip. Yeah, so the California flag is definitely top five. I've got Rhode Island in, in no particular order. Rhode Island, California, Ohio, and New Mexico, the land of enchantment, bringing up my, you know, my top four. The bear- that last one, really good. <laughs> the, bear, the bear in the California flag, though, does not exist in California, which makes me feel a little disillusioned. <laughs> like they don't what's the rationale for the bear then i don't remember but they don't have that like that grizzly bear doesn't doesn't live in california it lives north of there so that hurts my feelings a bit but it is a beautiful flag and i do accept your answer okay thank you <laughs> so <laughs> you are a huge uh 90s hip-hop enthusiast so the next yes. two questions are are about that uh, One, what, okay what, what as is, long as i don't have to freestyle because i'm not doing that no, no, that's the, that's the last, last question. I'm definitely, I'm going to have technical difficulty at the last question. So what is the best 90s hip hop solo act? This is a really awful question to ask someone who loves um, 90s hip hop because it's like, how do you pick? Um, 
I will say Eminem, even though I don't listen to Eminem a ton, he is like my inspiration for so much of what we do at Havener. Our website is inspired by him. There's this like super amazing commercial from the Super Bowl that he did for Chrysler that literally, if I want to run through a wall, if I like have something big to do in a day, I will watch that commercial and I will either be crying or like breaking stuff by the end. So just on the, the sheer amount of inspiration I get from him, I will pick him. But I probably listen to other rappers more than I listen to him. So the post-Great Financial Crisis, the like we love Detroit commercial, yeah. the, 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 the Detroit Super Bowl commercial out of the Great Financial Crisis were the best I've ever seen. No, like insane. I mean, I still to this day, I talk about people, people who know me are like, oh, she goes with the commercial again. But it doesn't matter. I don't care. Like I'm obsessed with it. No. I wish it was, I wish it was my commercial. Fantastic. I, I do love Detroit too. I'm on record as really loving Detroit. So last question. And there is, uh, I had, I had Aaliyah, but like Eminem is a very respected. You had Aaliyah as oh, your best night. I love Aaliyah. For real. I love Aaliyah and listen to her constantly. This and- is making my day right now. I just want <laughs> you to know that. Rest in peace. But <laughs> I, there's a, there's a correct answer for best nineties hip hop duo. And I really hope you get it right. So what last question? Well, first of all, there are very few nineties hip hop duos. You know that. That's why it makes it all that much easier. I just teed you up for, I alley-ooped it to you. I'm hoping you no, dunk it home. I'm definitely not going to get it because I went down a, a very big rabbit hole on this. I was like, there are very few hip hop duos. Very, uh, there, there's a lot of collabs. That's one of the things, like if our industry want to take a cue from the rap industry, which I'm sure is like, so there's so many things wrong with that statement, but I'm just saying like true collabs, rappers are amazing at that. There's very few, few industries that collab that way, maybe fashion. Um, I'm going to say, and I don't know if this is too gangster for standard deviation, Method Man and Red Man, the Blackout album. <laughs> the heavenly chime um, the heavenly chime see i think i think my computer's telling me i win the correct the answer we were looking for was outcast <laughs> and no because it's because you're from the south well it's because they're the best but <laughs> I, I will accept i will accept your your wu-tang side project <laughs> answer knowing that uh outcast was really the correct answer and it was very <laughs> I mean, they're very good lyrically, but they're very different styles. This is this podcast is going downhill. I think before <laughs> you just lose all credibility in, in the ears of my viewers, why don't you tell us? Don't come to Stacy for advice on '90s hip hop duos. She's working <laughs> there. But if you want to know about the psychology of sales, she's quite knowledgeable. If people want to know more about the psychology of sales want to know more about you and your work, where can they find you and read the good stuff you're putting out in the world? So <laughs> I love the hip hop part is, our fa- is my favorite. Thank you so much for this. Uh, they can find me on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is my platform of choice. You can follow me there, Stacey Havener. Uh, send me a, a note. 
I would love, I would love to, to connect there. And I'm, I'm really, again, I'm an introvert. So all of this, like stepping out, you know, from behind the curtain is, is new for me. And I appreciate how kind everyone has been, especially you. Well, you, you are a fantastic uh, follow on LinkedIn uh, daily or nearly daily. You put out some sort of inspirational message, some sort of new content, always very good. Stacy, uh, all jokes aside, thank you for coming and sharing your insights about the behavior uh, surrounding the sales process with us. I think I have, I've, I've learned a lot and I'm sure other folks have too. So thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliate subsidiaries and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.